debate with a tweet is not a man we can trust with nuclear weapons. This is the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. Hello, good morning, good evening, good night. You are listening to Politics, a podcast about politics and a limited anthology series on politics, uh, sort of like American Horror Story or New Zealand Horror Story, which is real. We'll be doing a podcast at least once, ideally twice a week in the lead up to the election, and then we will almost certainly go away and leave you alone forever. No long-term commitment. You're not roped into this for 13 seasons. We're just here to help you understand what's going on, uh, what we think might go on, and why you should or should not be terrified. Uh, I'm joined today by uh, Tim Batt, uh, uh, an extraordinary talent. In fact, Tim, why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself? An extraordinary talent. I like that. Uh, Hello, everybody. I am a podcaster, a stand-up comedian, and a dude who has been obsessed with following the US presidential election uh, this time around uh, from New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand, checking in. How about you, Jeb? Give us your qualifications and location. Well, I'm a, I'm a f- uh, resident of the state of Florida. I was born on the, uh, the west coast of the United States in, uh, on Silicon Valley, and I am a uh, political journalist for Rolling Stone. I used to be a writer for The Guardian, and I've uh, been a freelance writer several other places. Um, so this was your idea, Tim. Tell me the, the generative uh, process here for getting us both on mic. Dude, this has mainly been the fruit of uh, me spending an inordinate amount of time listening to podcasts, listening to punditry, reading articles, following 538, um, hourly refreshing where the polls are at, just following every twist and turn of the craziest US presidential election it seems like there's ever been. Um, And wanting to uh, put that hobby out into the world with a little bit of a, a slant, because what I know, what I've detected is there's just not enough people talking about this election, Jeb. There's a real hole in the market, a real gap out there for someone to come in and give their two cents about it. Um, <laughs> that's what I feel is out there. So it's about digging in. It's a slightly different perspective coming from someone. Uh, I feel like the entire international community is resting on my shoulders. I'm representing the rest of the globe that is in America. And um, that, that's that's why I was passionate about kicking this off. And Jeb, you're a, you're a fun guy with a little bit of time on your hands now. So it seemed like an opening. Yeah, and, and, and I'm already here for the noblest of reasons, which is money. Fantastic. Uh, so, but no, I, I like that, you know, I, I appreciate your entrepreneurial spirit uh, and, and your willingness to, to jump in and innovate in terms of, uh, you know, finding untapped markets, your, your arbitrage of discussion, because that's, that's the sort of American spirit that we're given a choice in this election between furthering or having a demonic socialist stamp out. Which leads us to our opening question, Jeb. Now that the brief introductions are out of the way, um, I think the question that sums up my current thinking is, how did, in 2016, America get to the point of having an election between the two most unpopular presidential candidates in polling history? There's the regular human answer, and then there's the, the sort of professorial answer, and and like the professorial answer is like five different parts. So I'll just try and mash it all together and make it seem normal. But I mean, I, off the, the first thing that I think would be kind of a key here is that, uh, you know, distrust in politicians and in the media that report on them just sort of keeps going up with every quadrennial cycle. So it's almost inevitable that whomever had been nominated, unless they had 
that kind of like Obama-esque transformative capacity for inspiring rhetoric. I think whomever we got was going to be generally loathed, um, at least in part now, because a lot of these guys who become uh, viable candidates, they, you know, they start going to Iowa two years before the election um, or four years setting up or six years setting up a, a run, you know, one quadrennial cycle down from the current one. So you've already had an opportunity to loathe them by the time they actually square off against their the other major party opponent. Uh, yeah, the length, the length of the campaigns seems stomach-churning for an outsider, especially it's it was cast in such stark light when you saw um, the UK have to elect a new prime minister on the fly and they pulled off the entire process in 60 days. Yeah, the, you know, there is a great line. Um, I think Bill Bryson, who is an American who wound up writing, living in England for a quarter century, said uh, something about how... Uh, you know, the shame of, of, of Soviet communism was that it was attempted in Russia as opposed to in England, where they're used to doing without, they enjoy queuing up in lines and disappointment is just sort of a national hobby. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just sort of like way more on the ball and may, way more prepared to just, you know, run with whatever shit show has given them than we are. Yeah. We've, you know, we've managed to extrude it into this sort of like, like taking that, that small town main street parade that happens once a year. And instead of making it something that just ruins from two to 4 PM on a Saturday, we've now made it like a parade that begins in March and ends somewhere in May. Absolutely. It's a multi-year venture. Anyway, look, we're digging too far into like your first of five professorial points. So Okay, all right. So the the second one uh, would be, you know, obviously you have you have Hillary Clinton and, and Donald Trump, who are now generational personalities. So if you had any animosity toward them when they first became famous, you've been able to let it, you know, steep or, or I guess age nicely until mm. you've got this this great vintage of loathing. Um, I mean, I didn't really know much of who Donald Trump was as a kid, apart from him being a blowhard on TV. But I remember my favorite cartoon my comic strip growing up was called bloom county uh which was a, a political satire uh comic strip and i was i think this only the second um newspaper comic strip to win the pulitzer prize after dunesbury right uh, but in the last year of of bloom county the way that berkeley breathed the writer sort of got him out of having to perpetuate bloom county was he had donald trump buy it <laughs> and then turn it into Brilliant. this trash heap and you know where opus the penguin's body you know his head got cut off and trump put his head on opus's body and um, when was this ending written when was this penned like 1988 I think. wow <laughs> the more things change eh? yeah no it's i mean it, every every sort of act of of you know hubristic tastelessness that you you've sort of seen on the trail was presaged in in the funnies briefly do you think that this phenomenon of uh, the ability for people to have developed and matured an opinion on these two figures for so long, is was this the beauty and part of Bernie Sanders as well? That he came out of nowhere, very few people knew who he was before, he said all the right things, he had a big back catalogue of saying the same things for multiple decades, and people were like, cool, great, this guy, never heard of him, looks good, smells good. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, on the far left, he became, he fir got his first burst of popularity when he did a Senate filibuster um, over, I think it was the Affordable Care Act. But it was it was a filibuster that went on for, you know, some six hours and people were live tweeting it. And you could watch in real time as his followers on his Facebook page 
yeah. went up by thousands and thousands. So you had right. the dedicated left had already heard about him and had embraced him. But it's something that, that Trump sort of understood. Uh, and he was the only other person in the race that understood it as well as, as Bernie did, which is, you know, the market value that he had in, in, in terms of the entertainment marketplace is similar to one that Corbyn had in that in, in the UK, where he just said what he believed in over and over. And even if you didn't necessarily, you know, like if you didn't adopt every single one of his views, there was something extraordinarily refreshing of this guy saying the number one business of Wall Street is fraud or yeah. in the first debate with Hillary Clinton saying, I'm, you know, I and the American people are sick to death of hearing about your damn emails. Yeah. And it was sort of, I almost uh, chalk it up to being, I I was a big Bernie supporter, by the way. Not that it matters, can't vote, obviously, not a citizen. But I think it's almost that case of a broken clock being right twice a day politically in that if you stay on message, eventually your time will come when that that message has relevance. So in the post-2008 global financial crisis, suddenly we're looking for these figures like Elizabeth Warren and like Bernie Sanders who have this big back catalogue of uh, battling the big corporations and the big banks. So maybe it was just kind of like a perfect uh, alignment of the planets in time for him to, to rise. Not enough, obviously, but did pretty well. Or, you know, the, the, the more generous reading is that if you are factually correct, eventually somebody who looks at the numbers will go, hey, listen, this is the only person who's saying that two plus two equals something other than five. And and let me be clear, I'm not taking away from the, the, the facts of it, but the, the politics of the situation and the facts, as we've seen, can often be two very different things, differently relevant at any rate. Oh, and then just, uh, you know, I think the third one that's that's very important is that you know, you, you have a you know, right wing media in the United States was a very deliberately engineered phenomenon. This wasn't the market creating um, uh, something that that people had been yearning for. In fact, you know, if it weren't for the fairness doctrine that was so demonized by the right, uh, you wouldn't have heard a lot of right wing commentary on the airwaves in the, the 50s and 60s because there was no consensus desire for it. And briefly, that, sorry, that fairness doctrine, if I've understood it correctly, is that every single debate, two sides should be represented of it, no matter how big or small that other side is. We should always hear with equal time that opposing view. Yes, there's an equal time rule for terrestrial broadcast. So if you were doing regular radio, non-satellite, if you were doing uh, cable, if you were doing network broadcast and not cable, then you had to have equal representation. And so that's where you got a lot of political commentators from the right who wouldn't necessarily have been, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily have had like a market impetus for, you know, some sort of showcase for them. It's non-proportional. Yeah, William F. Buckley wound up on PBS of all places. So you know. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, but you know there was this attitude, and you can go. There's an associate justice of the Supreme Court, Potter Stewart, who had the famous line when um, ruling about pornography that he, you know the difference between um, uh, what was it, obscenity and and uh, pornography. He said he couldn't define it, but he knew what he he knew it when he saw it. Uh, Potter Stewart wrote a very famous sort of brief that became circulated among the right wing, saying. You know, our ideas are not getting uh, a fair hearing. Um, and so we have to create our own parallel uh, uh, informational structure. And then that was an attitude that Roger Ailes then brought in the 70s. What they tried to do is create a kind of a, uh, a subscription service like, um, I'm trying to think, what's, oh, syndicated news. They tried to do it kind of like you'd syndicate Star Trek The Next Generation or something. They'd film these tapes 
and do these pieces and then send them to various local news stations in the hopes that they bought it. That failed. But eventually it caught on. And one of the tenets of that was, you know, whatever you're being told by the existing media is a lie. Yeah. Period. You know, they're in the tank and everyone on the other side of the ideological fence has this sort of, you know, deeply rooted mendacity in everything they do. And then when you combine that with, you know, ever since 1993, hounding Bill and Hillary Clinton, you have an atmosphere in which it would be astonishing if if Hillary Clinton weren't hugely distrusted and loathed. You know, it, you you can't put that many inputs into saying this person, you know, this this entire movement uh, of of political thought is fraudulent and predatory and deadly, and you can't say all the people that report on it are fraudulent, malevolent, and deadly, and you can't say this individual woman is all three of those things without there being like an actual negative result. It would be madness if, if that didn't eventually stick with a lot of people. Which leads us nicely to kind of the conclusion of this first bit of how did we get here? Because it feels like that's the bit where Dr. Frankenstein has created his monster and now the GOP doesn't know what in the hell to do with him. Um, it has been so much fun to watch from the outside without as large a um, personal investment as people living in the States to try and see Paul Ryan and the rest of the higher-ups in the Republican Party try and fathom what to do over the last few months with this figure Trump. And it seems like it's kind of settled now and they've figured out um, that they're just going to have to back him. But the whole to and fro of whether certain people were going to endorse him or not, I know that um, Ted Cruz came out after all of the... uh, all of the comments that he made about Trump and has um, come out and endorsed, endorsed him now, which seems like some sort of, um, I mean, death now is probably overwrought because we're only about 50 days or so away from the election. But it, it's some sort of finality on that whole movement. Um, in a moment, we're going to talk about where that's all led to, where we are now. But right now, we're going to take a brief, a brief second to catch our breath. And then we're going to dive into the present time, where we are now. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. As we record this right now, Jeb is in Florida, I'm in Auckland, New Zealand, and we are both about 24 hours away from the first debate. Is that right, Jeb? I think so. What's embarrassing is that I think you're more certain of this than I am. Um, Very well. Then I will, with confidence... (laughs) give you the details it's on monday night at 9 p.m eastern time uh lester holt from nbc nightly news will be the moderator and it's going to be conducted in hampstead new york um the second one's not until october the 4th uh so you get a a brief respite of a few days in between them so um you literally will in all likelihood be listening to this maybe after the first debate so the utility of us recording this now as I'm looking at polls before the debates happened, which I'm sure is going to be just swept right under the rug as everything shifts um, after that first debate. Are you ready for some numbers, Jeb, and to respond to them? Hit me. Bring it on. The most recent poll that's come out is an ABC News poll. Uh, among likely voters at the moment, 74% of Americans plan to watch the debate. That's a super interesting one to me. Um, mm-hmm. That first debate is going to be watched by three quarters of all Americans, but only... Uh, 20% of them admit that it may change their minds. Four out of five Americans say that it definitely will not change their minds. So they are watching for sport to back their team, not to be informed. Uh, 60% at the moment of Americans see Trump as unqualified for the role. And if the election was today, 44% say they'd vote for Trump. 
46 for Clinton, which if you've taken the uh, margin of error is essentially a dead heat. That's where we're at right now, moments before the first debate. This is, this is such a fun election in, in terrifying in equal measure because there are all these truisms that we've kind of internalized about American politics that we now can no longer really say are true. It used to be that you know, basically, like after the the convention bumps, because you you know you you do your speech, you get nominated, and everybody hears your message and says, "Ooh, I, I like that person," and you know they 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 get a few extra percentage points, and then your opponent has their uh, his or her convention bump, and then a yeah. couple of weeks later, it sort of subsides, everything settles down, and then that's usually kind of the outcome. The debates don't really change a whole lot unless there's a catastrophic moment. You know, unless somebody just pe- performs so badly that, you know, you can't help but change your mind about them. I mean, usually we're kind of locked in. And, and what's fascinating about Trump is that he's exactly the sort of person who can just screw the pooch on a debate so badly that he could hemorrhage five points. But that's the same thing that we've said about him at every step of the way through the primary, that this thing that he did, this shocking display of pig ignorance is totally disqualifying. And then we've watched his numbers go up. There is the brilliant chaos and entertainment value of this election. I was watching a video of a guy who's correctly um, predicted the outcome of every US presidential election for the last 30 years, a professor of politics in America somewhere. And he was like, I d- uh, based on my historically configured set of criteria, Hillary Clinton is sure to win this time based on this set of criteria um, that's, yeah, it's been calibrated on all of the elections that have come before it, except nothing has held true this election because Trump is has made this such a all bets are off um, competition that he's so uncertain about it as well. He's not even backing his own claim despite the fact that he's been right um, for every election going back 30 years. So it's it, this is the beauty of it. And Jeb, you have definitely uh, loudly shown your own politics as well uh and there's a terror there's a quiver in your voice as you're speaking about the distinct possibility of a president trump being in your near future but the the thing that um i definitely need to articulate as well is that there's a there's a very real possibility that hillary clinton is going to shit the bed during this debate as well like there are so many stakes that have um, politically and I, by my personal estimate unfairly have been put on the table to do with her, uh, all of these things about Hillary Clinton's health to do with their stamina um, all of these kind of bullshit things which were quite clever traps for Trump to lay early on because everyone gets sick <laughs> during these campaigns they're grueling they're intense they're incredible so it really was only a matter of time if you say that someone's weak they're low energy uh, they're tired that they're going to get a cold and you'll be able to go gotcha so he's laid some very clever traps people are really going to be looking he's sowed the seeds of a lot of conspiratorial theories that are out there um, people are now at the point where they're looking at Hillary Clinton's eye movements to detect if she's got a uh, undiagnosed neurological condition there's just I the, the Clinton camp what must be going on for the debate prep to navigate through this minefield that Trump's camp has set well I think I mean uh... It's weird, you know, on one hand, you want to kind of go, everything you just said is totally fascinating and totally irrelevant. And yet, like tonight, <laughs> I'm, gonna, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna pull like a Tom Friedman here, and instead of like, well, I was talking to my cab driver in Bangalore, and but, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, but I was talking to like, there's a really fantastic Sichuan place here in in Tampa Bay, which you wouldn't expect necessarily, but it's 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 amazing. And I I've gone there for a long time, and I talk to the owner every time I'm there. And she's from mainland China, and she just sort of told me like, you know, out of the blue, I'm standing up there waiting on my my takeaway order, and she's you know, can Trump win? And you know. You, you kind of don't know what people are getting at when they ask you a question like that. So I hemmed and hawed and then she just out with it says, cause I think I might go back to not Hong Kong. I mean, I'm going to go back to mainland China. Wow. If that, and you know, this is a woman who's a successful entrepreneur. Yeah. And one of the things she brought up was I'm so afraid that, you know, I've noticed that Hillary Clinton is sick and they say that, you know, she can't, some people think that she can't be president because of that. And I had to go like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. <laughs> and like walk her through this, kind of saying the same thing that you did. Like everybody gets exhausted. If you don't get a major illness on a campaign, you know, you, you there's something. Yeah, I, I would think that would be more disqualifying because that person would be a mandrel. Oh, absolutely. And like I've been going back watching um, this. Uh, I, I can't remember who. It might be PBS who have put it together. Um, but it's on Netflix of Race to the White House, which goes through about 12 different uh, White House elections. And they had uh, Bill Clinton losing his voice and all of these stump speeches he was giving um, were as raspy as hell. It, it, I mean, it happens every time. Every, every single election it happens. But Trump seems to have navigated through that probably by campaigning um, less. And to be fair, that video um, at the 9 11 event that hillary clinton was at i mean that's that's one of the most damaging things that's come out but that can happen when you have a flu or a cold or some bacterial pneumonia which yeah is and well the, the the thing so the the woman i was talking to is you know as a mom her kids work in the you know or they're in they're doing their homework in the uh the restaurant when i you, know, you go by in the mid-afternoon or whatever and uh and i said you know you, 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 there were all these reports from staffers. They said, well, you know, she was dehydrated and she got faint because she dehydrated and you cannot get Hillary Clinton, you know, you cannot get her to drink a bottle of water if she doesn't want to drink water. And I, and I, I thought, you know, the first thing I, I heard when I, uh, I thought when I heard that was, you know, you have an older woman, you know, she's in her 60s. She's a mom. She's probably got like really poor bladder control at this point, you know, because you you lose some bladder control when you after you give birth, you lose bladder yeah. control with age. This is probably a woman who just doesn't want to have to pee on the campaign trail the entire time. But but you can't say that on the network news. You can't just be like, listen, Hillary doesn't want to take a whiz, right? Because that's not toward. What was the event where she was speaking where she did take a bathroom break and that became a headline in and of itself months ago? Was that during the the primaries? It was one of the debates when, when I think uh, it was. I think it was when O'Malley was still in. I think it was the you know the probably the second oh or third debate or something. And she came back late when they came back from commercial break. Yeah. And and the most decorous way that the, that the network could point out explain it was well, it wasn't the network. I think it was somebody in print about a day later went and and like got a map of where the women closest women's restroom was. <laughs> Like to the stage versus the closest men's restroom. So she also had to walk a lot further than everyone else. How unbelievable is that? That someone going to the bathroom is a headline in 2016. And this I mean, and it's it's talked about um, a lot. And I won't say too much because it deserves to be talked a lot about a lot. But the double standard and the two different bars that these two candidates need to meet all the time is something going into this first debate that's so 
glaring and worrying to a lot of people who were backing Hillary Clinton because for Donald Trump to be assessed as being successful during this debate, he needs to just not embarrass himself. Whereas Hillary Clinton, it seems, needs to serve so many different goals and masters and look human while doing it. It's such a higher bar that she has to meet to be deemed successful in, in these series of debates. Oh, totally. I mean, like, as long as he doesn't fuck a child, like, yeah. on the stage, he's probably okay. If he doesn't do that or kill a dog, he'll be okay. And, and, and I mean, you're absolutely right. And not even before even getting into the, the sexual aspect, like the, the, the gender disparity and the different expectations and the unfair expectations that are put on women, to kind of go back to something we talked about before the break about the, you know, this, this parallel news culture. When Donald Trump screws up, the people who call him out on it are the mainstream media. And conservative media has a very easy job. They go, look at another character assassination of Donald Trump. So he has this kind of dedicated news service that it, whose purpose, and if you look at what Breitbart essentially became, and before Breitbart's editor-in-chief became a campaign manager for him, mm. um, you know, th their whole job is to make his problems go away and then you know, to take apples and oranges comparisons and turn them all back on the other candidates. So he has no fear of error. Plus, with, you know, you've got 40 plus years, almost 50 years of demonization of the mainstream media. So when the media does its job and says, this guy is woefully underqualified, or that's an unacceptable answer, or, you know, look at, you know, if he's, if he does everything less than fuck a child at the debate, and somebody points that out, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who may not necessarily even buy into conservatism in the United States, but they've already kind of absorbed through sheer repetition and osmosis this idea that the media such as it is will always go harder after someone like Trump because he's a conservative. And then, you know, the media is aware of that perception. And so what it does is it always does its due diligence of making sure that it goes after the Democratic candidate, even if there isn't anything to go after. I feel loath at this point. I'd be disappointed in myself if I was listening to this podcast and not press you on um, the issue of trustworthiness of both the candidates. Um, one of the big headlines from that latest ABC poll that came out was that Trump was actually deemed slightly more trustworthy among the respondents um, than Hillary Clinton at this point. Is it your um, assessment, Jeb, Lund, putting your name out there so you've got to back this opinion that that is founded purely on a historic bunch of smear campaigns that have been conducted by an empowered right-wing media that all kind of spawns from this twisted version of the fairness doctrine that's gotten way out of control and created this this monster establishment or do you think it's based on real things real issues like the email scandal i i think it's it's like 10% real issues, 90% BS. I mean, you know, the, the perfect example is like, what started Whitewater? Do you have any idea what Whitewater was a thing? I mean, seriously, like, do you have any idea? I read up on it earlier and can't remember offhand what it was all about. Yeah, it's exact. I mean, and, and so you have this sort of defining issue of a presidency and it had nothing to do with anything, basically. It started out as like, if I remember correctly, it started out over Travelgate. Like, which was an, another sort of made up kind of, uh, uh, you know, controversy of like White House travel bookings or whatever. And, and so this metastasizes, uh, you know, over the years until 
you know, now we, we're, we're discussing this thing that, that is so divorced from whatever, what, whatever initiated it and, and we're using it to, to tar a presidency. I mean, Hillary Clinton has been subject to this now since, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Hillary Clinton fan, really. Um, I will, you know, like in a swing state, I will probably wind up uh, begrudgingly for, drag but, your ass to the polls and do your yeah. national duty by voting for her. But I will, I, you know, I will, I will own up. I voted for Bernie in the primary. But um, you know, if you look, I wrote a piece in Rolling Stone, and, and people are welcome to search for it and drive the traffic. But it, you know, it was titled "There is no, re- <laughs> there is no real Hillary Clinton," which, to my shame, uh, Reince Priebus, uh, the chairman of the Republican National Committee, turned into an animated GIF and then repeatedly tweeted out. <laughs> wow! But, uh, my what quote, a badge yeah. of honor, Jeb. Yeah, it really stuck. Uh, um, but, but I mean, what, look, let's draw a distinction here. Do you do you chalk up the um, the private email scandal as being equivalent to the Whitewater scandal and the scandals of old? Because it really this, seems to me like there are there's real meat on the bones. There is a genuine um, there is an, uh, something. It feels like a crime's been committed. Um, I watched that. Uh, I watched Comey's press conference that he gave in full, the head of the FBI, when he made the announcements about what they were going to do, and the um, report being uh, put out there based on the investigation, and that they weren't going to recommend to the Department of Justice to press charges. But it seemed like everything apart from that statement indicated that they willfully broke the law about how they were treating uh, confidential um, emails and communications. Well, the, so it seems real is basically the overarching point I'm trying to make. I don't want to get into the, the absolute minutiae and nitty gritty of it, but you hear what I'm saying? Yeah, no. And, and this is this is sort of like kind of to go back to the Whitewater thing and to go back to the, the, the piece I, I plugged shamelessly. Um, but the, <laughs> Do the, it. Um, it's a podcast. You're not going to make money off just putting this thing out there. Got to get those hits, man. You know, it, it, it's, it, it's a technical violation that if you look at what, you know, uh, like what ensued from it, it's an utter nothing burger, right? But you keep pressing on and you keep hyping this violation until people feel like, you know, this is real, you know, it was a dire consequence here. You know, in the, in, in sort of the, you know, the right wing echo chamber, you look at, well, there were all this, there was all this classified information that wound up on her server. Well, almost all of that was uh, stuff that been, was classified after the fact so when they were when they were exchanging this information it was fine for them to exchange that information but retrospectively this should you know now we should not let certain people see it or uh you know these these gross breaches of security that endanger the united states there is no there there and then what's hysterical is that the accusation is well the russians could have hacked her private server and gotten insight into you know what's going on in the United States, and of course Donald Trump on the trail is in, in literally like directly inviting the Russians to hack Hillary Clinton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, I'm going to respectfully I, draw a line in the sand though and say that I'm not 100 percent with you on on that. I think um, I definitely agree that there's no smoking gun in terms of there hasn't been a leaked communique that's come out, which hasn't like seems to prove that lives have been endangered by the process. But it was it was definitely not the correct process, and it seems like after the fact there was a concerted effort to hide that fact from people and she's repeatedly i mean they never they never had a good handle on the communication of the issue they never seemed to be able to create a good um sort of talking point for how to get out of it and then it just kept 
evolving and with the slow release of how the records were coming out because it was such a volume of information it just turned into this never-ending kind of cascade of of stuff of headlines that came out in the news but it did i do i do think that um it seems like she lied to the public about um about that issue yeah no and and that's that's the kind of pity and that of the clintons and and sort of what i went through again in that piece <laughs> like you know the, they 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 were so hounded over these these sort of nothing burgers that they and and they had a problem in the first term with with leaks in the white yeah. house and people talking to the press that they they did two things well one they became uh they surrounded themselves with loyalists and i think they started to prize loyalty over let's say probity or competence because there are certainly some people in the Clinton inner circle who when you get them out on their own and actually you know have a a kind of like tete-a-tete with them you're kind of like how is this person this surprisingly dumb right uh, one and then two you know they, they started to prize secrecy over transparent transparency just by default and you know that comes from like you know they you know Clinton in the Hillary Clinton in the nineties famously went out uh, at the start of the Whitewater mess and I, I think gave like a two hour press conference where she answered every question and the the clear intent of it was if I we just tell the American people what's up this will yeah. go away and yeah. it had the opposite effect and they yeah. never did that sort of thing again but the problem is it looks like you're hiding something right you know so you yes. make that a policy well we're just not going to disclose things. And so what now has become a protective gesture then starts to look like a clandestine and sinister gesture, which can then be capitalized on. And then, you know, as you kind of said, they they really fumbled the reaction to it instead of I mean, it was weeks and weeks and weeks later that she finally said, listen, I comprehensively screwed up here. Yeah. And I think you have beautifully articulated what the actual truth is if if there is such a thing in this post-facts world of it's it's the conspiratorial um theories that are out there about this like secretive government that's being conducted on a private server in her basement is not true um the official line that she kept trying to push that uh there was never knowingly um anything going on that was um sort of out of process or out of protocol and it was all just a big kind of misunderstanding essentially which was the initial line is not true but the truth lies far more towards what clinton was saying and it's just this you're right this learned behavior of having to hide things because of being burned in the past um by exposure and by uh trying to over explain things that it, it does it's created this whole um feel of um defensiveness and uh the clintons are always called these people who feel like they're above the law and above the rules and that i i really think that's where it comes from is that they have found a way to conduct themselves and their lives where they selectively hide bits of information and then a lot of people because they're politicians get to assume the very worst in the absence of correct information or timely information and the the video that came out of the 9-11 event that she was at um, when she collapsed through dehydration into the van is such a perfect example because they didn't immediately come out and say she has pneumonia or she's going to the doctor or what have you because of all these landmines that have been set about her health and her um, her fitness for the for the office and the physical sense uh, because they have to be selective about that then when something does come out to prove that they have been withholding information 
the a large portion of the public can think the very worst and so mm-hmm. it's this kind of never-ending cycle but it also kind of doesn't bode super well for a presidency and transparency in the white house what's funny about you know the image of the of her being hustled into that van when she uh you know sort of started to topple over which i think is just sort of great and like such a perfect illustration of how fucked this entire process is right is if you think about what's the secret service first going to do if they see you know their potential president get injured in some way right they're going to hustle them to a safe area yeah, you know yeah. something's amiss. That's the first. So I mean, that's the logical thing to think of, right? But because they've, you know, she's been attacked and attacked and attacked and attacked, and then, you know, had to resort to secrecy to to carve out some sort of space for her and her family or or her administration or whatever. Mm. It's fed into this notion that the first thing they were trying to do was hustle her away from the cameras, right? Or like we've got to get her in the car so no one can see. Yeah. When like, yeah. you know, and that interpretation automatically works. And like, you know, you, you know, I might well have thought of that. I don't remember if that was my first reaction, but maybe I thought like, oh, they're trying to get her away from the cameras. And only later did I think, well, no, you idiot. You know, it's the secret service. That's the thing. <laughs> if, 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 there's so many, yeah. <laughs> it's a it's death by a million cuts. It really is because if you generally take any of these individual things and start delving into it more than an, an inch on the surface, you can generally find a pretty reasonable explanation for anything. But when you put it all together, it looks like this big smoky mess of um, constant conspiracies and headlines. Anyway, it's tiring. Um, I'm sorry to throw so many conspiracies at you, Jeb, all at once. Should we take a brief moment? and then head into our predictions, which is going to be so dicey doing this close to the first debate because they could be proved wrong so instantly. But should we take a brief break and then have a look into the future? Absolutely. Everybody should recharge. That was a grim segment. Um, You know, happier days are ahead or not. You're going to have to stay tuned to find out. I think the next president needs to be a lot quieter, but send a signal that we're prepared to act in the national security interests of this country to get back in the business of creating a more peaceful world. Please clap. Welcome back. After all that analysis and uh, and um, let's say, maybe it's generous to call it analysis. Maybe let's just call it bloviating. But after all that backstory, I think it's important uh, that we put our money where our mouth is. Uh, we should be held accountable for getting it wrong um that won't actually redound on us in any negative way because this podcast ideally will end the day after the election so you know you won't have anywhere to write letters and we won't have to go on the air and admit that we've done wrong but you'll know and that's important so god bless the internet the place where you can have a huge opinion and no accountability for it exactly and and where nobody will ever be able to track you down and tell you that you were wrong too except twitter We've gotten away with it completely. It's basically like if the mask could never come off in an episode of Scooby Doo. There you go. Just glued on. (laughs) So, Jeb, do you want to do you want to kick off with your election predictions? What? How do you think this is going to carve up? I feel like mine are going to be like boring and long winded. So I think you should go first. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna paint real broad brush strokes, and I think there's um, a little kind of. There's a little uh, punk rebel bit in me that might be driving this, but I'm going to say Trump's going to win um, the the presidential election in 2016. I think that that Trump's going to have a term in the White House. And the reason I think this is because there's going to be surprisingly low voter turnout on the Democratic side. Um, I think there's a combination of complacency and disappointment 
with the candidate who they've wound up with and there's just such a small amount of people who are truly passionate about seeing Hillary Clinton as being the candidate which I, I don't necessarily agree with that fact whatsoever I just that's the reality that I see from over here in New Zealand um, and I think that there is a lot of passion driving uh, the Trump train no breaks as they say and I, I actually think um, on the balance of probabilities and again maybe this is being fueled a little bit by my contrarian side I reckon he's going to win um, the first debate Hopefully we'll change that. But right now, that's where my heart is. That's where my head is. I, I don't blame you for that at all. And it's so, you know, you said earlier, you know, this is a long election process uh, in America and it's longer for me. I mean, it's effectively, you know, the shadow election of the fundraising and, and people going to places like Iowa and people releasing campaign books. I've effectively been writing about this since January of 2015. And you live in Florida. There's no escape for you. No. Uh, no, none at all. I mean, because I mean, Trump is, is is in Florida, and and uh, uh, Rubio was in Florida. Jeb was in Florida. The other Jeb, the false Jeb, the real Jeb, uh, the Jeb. No, 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 he's no, he's he's an acronym. He's not a real Jeb. He's a false oh, Jeb. He's a pretender. <laughs> um, so I've lived with this for a long time, and I, I have these moods. You know, I have the sine wave of of mood, and I've definitely been in exactly your position where I've said like. There's no way, you know, there's no way he doesn't win. Um, mm. And I think for whatever reason, I'm on the other end of that. I am partly from talking to my, uh, my restaurateur friend, cause she was scared. And I was trying to think of like, well, here, you know, here are the reasons why I think you shouldn't be scared. Uh, so really quickly, mm. um, the Republicans have only won one popular election since um, 1992. That was 2004, 2000, the, the, the 2000 vote should have gone to Gore. So uh, you look demographically, they're at a point where they're no longer going to in, win presidential elections. And that's exactly what the, uh, the campaign, the 2012 campaign autopsy that Reince Priebus, the, uh, the Republican National Committee chairman, uh, commissioned after t- uh, 2012. That's what it said. Yeah. We need to yeah. have more outreach to Hispanics, uh, to That was blacks. the top line point of it, wasn't it? There was a bunch of recommendations, but that was kind of rule number one, that we need to have a huge Latino outreach program to actually ever have a future Exactly. You know, they said we're facing a demographic demographic time bomb and we have to do something to reverse it. And uh, and what happened was they released this and you could watch the entire media go, well, the Republicans are going to get friendlier and more inclusive and we're going to see some change here. And I don't even remember who did it, but it was maybe a month or six weeks later, some major figure just just fucked that up completely. You know, <laughs> And it was just very obvious that, you know, all the aspirations aside, that wasn't going to happen. And yeah. so if you look at the demographics, if you can make a demographic argument for Hillary Clinton, if if she doesn't necessarily, she doesn't need and she will not get the same level of support in the black community that, that Obama got for obvious yeah. reasons. Um, uh, because everybody is, is reverse racist in America. No, um, uh, <laughs> you know, you can make that argument. The other argument you can make um, is that Trump has no get out the vote operation at all. Uh, and that's that's something that can swing a couple of points for you on the last sure. day. Um, it, there was an article in Politico recently that there are more Trump campaign operatives in the state of Israel than in the state of Florida. <laughs> Jesus. Because of the there are the hundreds of thousands of American expats who live there via birthright, um, you know, who go over on like birthright camping trips and then, 
you know, meet a spouse because you that they're in, in some ways they're designed to do that. Um, uh, you know, you meet somebody and you decide to stay. So there, there's there are these Trump supporters in Israel who are very hands on about doing this and and courting those three hundred thousand absentee votes. There wow. aren't there aren't comparative operations in any of the states um, because Trump isn't doing it. So he's and he's always into- said that he's going to rely on the RNC to kind of take care of that, right? Like that's been the Trump campaign's message for a long time: is that sort of we don't need to worry about that. Like the RN- the, the Republican Party is going to deal with all that. Exactly, and that does that, and that puts pressure on down ballot candidates because what he's doing is he's dividing resources. So yeah, yeah. A, a, the Republican Party, you know, wants to to basically leave him on on his own. Um, sure, I think sensing defeat or sensing at least it it being um, not optimal, uh, throwing you know more uh, throwing good money after bad. Let's yes. say. Um, and so he's not, you know, he's not giving them an out. So he's dividing resources and time. And so on election day, you know, in, you know, in states like California, Clinton is going to have dozens and dozens of offices where they can call up pledged voters and say, hey, did you vote today? Mm. And if the person says no, they say, why not? Oh, your car broke down. Well, why don't you tell us where you are and we'll see if we can get you to the polls? Because that's what you do. You know, you go and you find any way, even if it means taking your, your campaign volunteers in their, you know, beat up old Toyota Tercels and doing a carpool and getting people down to their precinct. You go do that. He doesn't have those people at all. Um, there, you know, there are another couple things that you can do, like, you know, encouraging things I see. The Real Clear Politics average has basically always favored Clinton. Um, you know, Trump has eaten into that little bits when you've seen the media go nuts and sort of swarm around the email stories or yeah. swarm around Clinton's illness. Yeah. If she doesn't get ill again, and if there isn't a conveniently timed, and I'm sure there will be a conveniently timed, um, you know, press release from some Republican chaired committee in Congress about some perfidy that, that Clinton has committed, um, barring that or barring the, the, the media jumping all over that, if they get equal time per comment or per act or in Trump's case, per atrocity, right? Mm. I think that, you know, you, you know, I think that Clinton will do well, um, you know, because even her supporters can be discouraged by by the media swarming. But if they, you know, Trump says four outrageous things per day. If every outrageous, if every statement is given equal time, eventually, I think his personality will depress some turnout for him. The other argument you can make is why why do you why do you think that's going to start happening now? Because if if you if you make a case that there are undecided voters, and I don't mean independent voters, independent voters are usually just Republicans who want to yeah. seem like they're fair-minded, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and some Democrats who want to seem fair-minded. But the people who are going to make up their mind, if, you know, such as they are, if, you know, if you have that kind of... Basically, I think that that swarm that happened over the, the, the latest batch of emails and then her fainting was reporters getting nervous that they were going after Trump over and over and over. And Clinton gave them an out to create a false sense of balance. So they went balls to the wall criticizing her. And then they got a lot of media criticism blowback because what they were ignoring from Trump at the same time that they went on on Clinton was pretty outrageous. I mean, because he he was alive and speaking that day, right? (laughs) Um, So I think that once, you know... when you're a few weeks away from the election, I think we're under 45 days now, um, it, when, when, especially when it gets to the last two weeks, I think that 
writers and reporters will be less worried about uh, playing to a false that that sort of false equivalency of I have to say equal amounts of A and B, even if B is the only one doing something stupid and awful. Okay. Um, you know, it'll just be like, there's no time to worry about it. Let's play it straight. One and two, I think, I think many of them will be worried that they're, they're padding the stats for who could be, you know, the, the, the person who could be the first fascist president in the United States. I think there yeah. might be some some personal will kind of creeping into it of like, yeah, all right. You, you think um, that the the reality and gravitas of the situation will actually change now because it's like, hey, we're at the the real bit of the election is now. We 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 are in it now, rather than yeah. the spectacle of the lead up to it. it. And this is this is not I you know, I do not think that this is uh, necessarily reliable data. Anecdotal evidence is bullshit because it's just as weighty and just as serious as the next anecdote, anecdote that comes along, right? Um, but just watching all the journey, you know, because I professionally have to follow a lot of journalists on Twitter, just watching all these people who are really enjoying teeing off on Clinton just because they find her irksome, right? Yeah. Or tiresome or a hassle, a bad interview, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they were having fun a month ago. And then yeah. when all of a sudden her numbers flattened, you could see some of that fun disappear. It's like, okay, let's get real. And yeah. that, that actually kind of flows into one other thing I wanted to add, which was right coming out of the the, the convention, she had an almost 11-point lead. Mm-hmm. And that evaporated because when you're when the side that you may not necessarily be gung-ho for has that much of a lead, you may not vote, right? There are a lot of third-party people out there who are, you know, were, were feeling very comfortable with their Green Party vote or their yeah. Libertarian Party vote because yeah. Clinton had an 11-point buffer. Or maybe they would stay home and that would be their protest. But as it narrows, the people who might have been on the fence but who've already made up their mind, you know, they might be more responsive in the polls or maybe they never get polled, but they do show up on uh, at the polling precinct. And there is such a good point and such an interesting feature of this constant polling and constant publishing of where the numbers are at is that you are capturing a certain amount of people and behavior changes for the whole group based on that published number. Like what you're saying with, if yeah, if Clinton's ahead by 11 points, it's like, sure, I can afford to be campaigning for Gary Johnson or at the very least voting for him. But if it's mm. neck and neck within the margin of error that they're tied, you're going, holy shit, maybe I need to really reassess my behavior here. Yeah, and so I think I think those four things together, I think the demographic demographic advantage, which... I should buy them about two points. I think people who are scared shitless or saying like, listen, I can be principled on the next election. Yeah. But this one, I just got to go ahead and stave off apocalypse. Those Mm. two things, um, plus the, the get out the vote effort that they're going to have so much better than, than Trump's going to have. I think it's about four points. I think it's going to come down to a a four point Clinton lead, but that's, that's pretty much like what I was saying a couple of months ago. I haven't strayed from the four points. So that's, that is my one bias is I, I might be kind of adhering to my earlier prediction just because I want to sound right. <laughs> <laughs> well, writer. Let's, let's see, because we don't even have to wait that long to be proven correct or incorrect. So it's, it's going to be an interesting, however many days it, it's about 50 days. It's something like that. 50 to 45 yeah. days. Um, Jeb, thank you so much for the time, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you and hopefully um, we'll get another one of these worked up. Uh, within about a half a week we want to try and pump these out pretty consistently and be talking about what is unfolding in real time Um, and if you want to get in touch with us how do people find you Jeb? 
Uh, I'm on Twitter at Mobute, M-O-B-U-T-E. Um, I also have a, a dedicated Facebook uh, writing page. It's uh, uh, Jeblun's Word Salad. If you want to find me there, you can do that. Excellent. And if you want to see what I'm banging on about, I'm on Twitter at Tim underscore Bat, B-A-T-T. And I just wanted to throw out one promise to our listeners, which is now that we've done all the backstory and yes. once we get into minutiae, there'll be way more time for senseless bullshit, I think. Yeah. And, and joking. True. Yes. <laughs> we can lighten up. We've laid the groundwork. Thanks very much for the time and I'll catch you soon, Jeb. Excellent. Excellent.